Welcome to Women's HealthCast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'll be exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN. In this episode, we're back with Eliza Bennett to learn more about long-acting reversible contraception like IUDs and implants. We're also going to discuss birth control and pregnancy, when to stop before deciding to get pregnant, when to start back up after birth, and how different methods affect breastfeeding. Dr. Bennett is an OBGYN and expert in family planning at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UW-Madison. If you missed her first episode, definitely go back and check it out to learn about how contraceptives work and how she helps patients think through the right birth control options for them, as well as a very in-depth conversation about the pill. Uh, I wanted to ask about um, a different kind of birth control, and that's long-acting reversible contraception. Um, I have lots of questions, starting with basically, uh, what what is that? What does that mean? So long-acting reversible contraception is a form of birth control that can be used for years, um, but once somebody desires fertility, can be completely reversed. Um, Because of its ability to be used for long durations, they have very low failure rates, so they're highly effective at preventing pregnancy. Um, They're very well tolerated. Um, and they have, when we look at um, some large studies have, that have been done, they have the highest patient satisfaction rates and the highest continuation rates. So why would someone choose those? Um, I think that most people like long-acting reversible contraception because of its ease of use. It doesn't require a daily, even weekly or monthly um, dosing. Um, it sits in place for, for years on end effectively prevents pregnancy, and it's not something people have to think about or worry about. What um, what kinds are available? How do you get it? So there's basically two times of, types of long-acting reversible contraception um, available in the U.S. Um, there's an implantable device called the Nexplanon, and then there's intrauterine devices. And currently um, on the market, there's one non-hormonal device called the uh, intrauterine device called the Paragard IUD, and then there are five or four levonorgestrel uh, intrauterine devices. There is um, uh, Marina and Liletta, which have essentially the same dosage of levonorgestrel, about um, 20 uh, micrograms per day. And then there are two lower-dose levonorgestrel devices, the um, Kylina and the Skyla. Um, and uh, those are all the levonorgestrel intrauterine devices are all the sort of newest kids on the block in terms of long-acting reversible contraception. And I think, to a large degree, they're what's responsible for the resurgence of the IUD um, in the United States um, because of their ease of use and their really um, beneficial side effect profile. Do the higher dose and the lower dose um, IUDs work differently, or do they work for different amounts of time? They work for different durations for the most part, um, and they have different side effects, but their mechanism of action, so um, the way that they prevent pregnancy is essentially the same across all of them. So the Mirena and the Liletta, as I said, are essentially the same dose of levonorgestrel. There's just sort of two different manufacturers of a very similar device. 
Um, currently, the marina is approved for five years um, of continuous use, and the Liletta is approved for four years of continuous use. The Liletta is currently in ongoing uh, clinical trials um, and has applied to the FDA for their five-year approval. The company that um, makes Liletta has um, uh, verbalized that they plan on continuing their clinical trials for seven years um, and, and attempting to get a seven-year approval um, eventually for that device. Um, what we know from a large WHO trial um, that was run with the Mirena is that the um, efficacy up to seven years of the um, levonorgestrel IUD um, continues. It does not lose efficacy in that five to seven year time frame. Um, the lower dose devices, um, the Skyla and the Kylina, um, are uh, manufactured for two different durations of use. The Kylina is five years and the Skyla is three years. And they have a lower dose of levonorgestrel, so because of that, they have a lower rate of amenorrhea, so of suppressing menstruation, um, and they have more spotting or bleeding days. Um, they um, release a slightly lower dose of uh, levonorgestrel over time, um, but the Kylina is, is approved for the same amount of time as the Mirena. Um. When is it safe to get an IUD? Is there like a, a point in a woman's cycle when she can get it, have it inserted or? So the one thing that we want to make sure when somebody gets an IUD is that they're not pregnant. Um, so we always want to make sure that a woman's been using uh, effective form of contraception if, if um, she's been sexually active in the two weeks prior to insertion or um, has been abstinent from intercourse for those two weeks prior to insertion. At the time of insertion, we generally do a pregnancy test to rule out pregnancy. Um, and then the other thing with IUD insertion is there's a small risk of infection just at the time of insertion, um, because as whenever we put something inside of somebody's body, um, bacteria can get inside of the body as well. Um, and so we would want to make sure that there's no evidence of infection in the cervix. Um, so often we will do STD testing if there's risk factors at the time that we place IUDs. Um, the thing that I heard when I was sort of learning about this is, you know, if you haven't had a baby, you shouldn't have an IUD put in. Is that true? So um, not anymore. <laughs> that used to be what the thought was. Um, the IUD has a little bit of a storied history in the United States because of a very poorly designed device um, that was on the market in the 1970s called the Dalcon Shield. And because of that, um, device. There were very restrictive practice guidelines for IUD use for a long time in the U.S. Um, the newer devices are very safe. They have very low risk of infection. Um, they do not increase the risk of infertility. They don't increase the risk of PID. They don't increase the, the risk of um, tubal occlusion or tubal scarring. Um, so knowing that, um, the previous restrictions were based on the fear that an IUD could cause infertility. Um, and we know now that, that our modern IUDs do not increase the risk of infertility. Um, and so with that thought, the other concern in putting IUDs in women that hadn't had babies was that maybe their uterus wouldn't retain the IUD, that it would, it, because it was a smaller uterus, because it had never been 
been pregnant, um, it wouldn't allow for the IUD to stay inside the uterus. And what, what we know now is actually nulliparous women, so women who've never been pregnant, actually have a lower expulsion rate. They're less likely um, to expel their IUD from their uterus than a woman um, who's had a previous pregnancy. Um, there is a little bit more pain with insertion because the cervix tends to not be um, as dilated or, or quite the opening to the uterus doesn't tend to be um, quite as large as a woman who's had a baby before. But generally, that um, the insertion is well tolerated. I usually recommend some ibuprofen or naproxen prior to insertion, and most women do just fine. Um, Sometimes people feel a little bit more crampy for the day or two after the IUD is placed um, if they haven't had a baby before. Um, but usually I just recommend taking ibuprofen or naproxen regularly for those couple days after insertion. What are the um, efficacy rates of LARC methods, long-acting reversible methods like IUDs and the implants? So they're the most effective forms of birth control. All of them have a risk of pregnancy of well under 1%. One of the reasons is because they're always there. People don't have to remember to take a pill every day or place a diaphragm or use a condom. And, and so the risk of forgetting um, is taken away. And because of that, the risk of, of pregnancy with an IUD or an implant is, is well under 1%. What else do you want people to know about the long-acting reversible options? Um, I would want people to know that they should be considered um, as the first option. I think a lot of times people... Um, because maybe it's because of the historical context or just because of the sort of wide use of the pill are much more comfortable initiating contraceptives um, that are short acting. Um, and I would encourage people to not start with a pill and not start with, you know, these, these short acting methods. Instead, start with an IUD or an implant, look at the side effects, look at the um, sort of uh, method of insertion and all those sorts of things. Um, figure out what works for you. But oftentimes the side effects are really desirable for many people. Um, the insertion is not significantly painful. And because they're so well tolerated um, and have such a high continuation rate, most people will be very, very happy with that contraceptive device um, and continue it for a long duration of time. You know, the other thing to think about is is the, the sort of cost effect. And it's not just the cost of the actual device or the cost of the pills. It's the cost to your life of having to remember to go to the doctor every year to get your pills refilled. Remember to go to the pharmacy every three months to get your pill packs. Remember to take your pills on vacation with you or um, deal with missing or lost pills if that happens. All of those things um, increase the risk of failure. Um, and even if it isn't failure, it's still just time out of your life that you've spent dealing with your birth control that if you had an IUD or an implant, you would never have to do because you don't have to think about it. I know I personally do not miss the little frisson of panic I had at 10 a.m. almost every workday. Like, did I remember this morning? I'm not going to know till I get home. That's been a 
big, wonderful change. <laughs> I think the ease of mind, it really can't be underestimated. I mean, I think there is a very interesting uh, sort of body of, of research on decision fatigue. Um, and taking a pill every day is a decision or a something you have to remember. Um, and, and people with busy lives and busy schedules and lots of things that they're doing, taking that out of the equation, not having to worry about it, it's just it's just one more more thing that that doesn't cloud your mind and doesn't take up your mental resources. Can you review one more time just the side effects of some of the LARC methods, which you said are largely um, very tolerable for a mm -hmm. lot of people? Mm -hmm. So I think um, if we divide them into three groups, there's the hormonal implant, there's the non-hormonal copper IUD, and then there's the hormonal IUDs. So for the hormonal, hormonal implant, um, which is called the Nexplanon, it's the only one available here in the U.S., um, the biggest side effect is irregular bleeding. Um, so about 30% of people that use the hormonal implant um, will stop having bleeding altogether. So they'll have amenorrhea, will stop their menstrual cycle. Um, then 30 to 50% will have fairly regular periods, um, about the same amount of bleeding that they had um, prior to getting the device, but maybe a little bit less predictable. And then there's the 10 to 20% of women who will have really bothersome bleeding. In general, it is not an uh, increase in blood loss, but it is an increase in frequency of spotting or bleeding days. Um, and so we see about a 10 to 20% discontinuation rate in those, and it's frequently in those women who have bothersome bleeding where they bleed um, daily or, or um, weekly um, on the device. Um, unfortunately, uh, there is not sort of a, a predictability to who is going to have that irregular bleeding and who is not. Um, I usually tell people to give it three months because it does take a, some amount of adjustment of the body to um, the consistent daily presence of that hormone. Uh, after three months, if women are still having bothersome bleeding, it's reasonable to consider um, switching to a different method. Um, I think a couple of, of uh, the worries that people have with the Nexplanon or the hormonal implant um, is uh, weight gain. And in the um, studies that have been done on it, there has not been shown to be an increase uh, in weight um, between the women that are using it and women who are not using it. So that's, I'd just like to reassure people that that's not a common side effect. Um, then uh, the other group, um, hormonal IUDs. Um, so Mirena, Loletta, Kylina, Skyla. Mirena and Loletta, which are the slightly higher dose levonorgestrel devices, they re release about 20 micrograms per day. Um, their biggest side effect is decrease in bleeding. Um, usually the first few months that the device is placed, people will have some irregular bleeding or spotting. Once that resolves, many women um, have a very light period or no period at all. Um, about 20% of people have absolutely no bleeding, um, but up to 90% have a decrease in their um, bleeding frequency and volume. Um, and they're actually labeled to treat women that have heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, so that's another um, sort of prescribing parameter that we can use for the, the Marina um, and Lailetta. 
Um, and so because of that, they're very helpful in women as they um, approach that menopausal transition and they have more irregularity in their bleeding pattern and um, can have some uh, heavier bleeding cycles because of their diminished ovarian function. Um, so that's a good place where we use those. The Kylina and Skyla are slightly lower dose um, methods. And <clears throat> because of that, they tend to have more irregular bleeding. However, about somewhere between 12 to 15% of people that use Skylina and Skyla will still have amenorrhea. They will still stop having their period. Um, it does tend to decrease the volume of bleeding that women have um, with their menstrual cycles, um, but it doesn't decrease it to the same level as the Mirena or Lilata. Um, and then finally, the Paragard IUD um, is a only uh, highly effective non-hormonal form of contraception. Um, it also has the um, sort of irregular bleeding effect um, after the with the first insertion and first few months of use. Usually, once again, by three months, that's sort of settled out. Some women that use the Paragard will experience heavier menstrual cycles, longer menstrual cycles, or more painful menstrual cycles. It, it isn't everyone who uses it, though. Um, and so lots of women, if prior to getting a Paragard IUD, had normal to light cycles and did not have significant pain, pain with their periods, those women tend to do very well with the Paragard IUD. Um, taking um, scheduled naproxen or ibuprofen can help decrease the amount of bleeding that people experience with a Paragard IUD, and it also can decrease the amount of pain um, with those menstrual cycles. Um, and so it's often a very reasonable thing to do to just take scheduled ibuprofen um, through one's menstrual cycle if they're using a Paragard IUD. The nice thing about a Paragard IUD is that it can be used for 10 years, um, so it has a very long duration of action. Um, and that helps, you know, sort of reduce the risks associated with insertion because it, it cuts in half the number of insertions that people need to have. We've talked about um, birth controls that you can start and stop kind of at any time. But um, what about permanent options? I guess what kinds of permanent birth control are available? So for women, um, the types of permanent birth control that are available would be um, laparoscopic tubal sterilization, um, which basically requires um, surgical um, transection or, or um, cutting through the fallopian tubes or removing the tubes entirely, which is becoming more common um, due to some recommendations that come out of the oncology community um, that have promoted removing tubes entirely due to um, the theoretical benefit of reducing future risk of ovarian cancer. Um, the other option is something called an ESHER, which is a tubal occlusion that can be performed um, by looking through the uterus, so up through the cervix with a camera, um, and um, then cannulating the fallopian tubes with um, small coils that then over um, two to three months um, causes scarring. After that time period, we do a dye test where we evaluate the um, occlusion of the fallopian tubes. Um, if they're seen to be occluded, then people are sterilized with that method as well. 
Unfortunately, Esure um, in the last few years has come under some increased scrutiny from the FDA due to reports of um, complications from the device, mostly pelvic pain. Um, so uh, it now contains, the device now has a black box warning regarding the increased risk of, of pelvic pain after the use of, of the Esure coils. Um, it's still a very rare complication, um, but it is something that people should be aware of. I think I had read um, that it might be related to a nickel allergy that is apparent in some patients. So um, that is something to be aware of, and I do avoid using Esure coils in people that have a nickel allergy because the coils contain nickel. Um, so women that have sensitivity to um, nickel and jewelry that's usually where they know that they have the allergy from. It's a good idea to choose a different method of sterilization. The benefit of the, the Esure sterilization is that it doesn't require um, general anesthetic or an abdominal surgery because it's done through the uterus. Um, it can even be done in clinic, um, and that avoids those surgical risks and complications. So in certain women um, who, for whatever reason, are not good surgical candidates, it can be an excellent option. So I have um, kind of just some more general questions about... Um, birth control, kind of through the lifespan, and um, I guess specifically related to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. If um, Tell me about, okay, someone who uses a hormonal method and decides now's the time I want to, um, I want to try to have a baby. What do they need to know about like when to stop using and um, what to expect after that? So for the majority of hormonal methods, um, there needs to there doesn't need to be any lead time in terms of stopping that method, with the possible exception of Depo-Provera. So in some women, especially women who've used it for a long duration of time, the return to fertility can take up to 18 months. So that's one where you you just sort of want to know that that is a possibility. However. In some women, it stops working immediately. So it's not predictable who it's going to take a long time to wear off and who it isn't. But in general, for the other methods, IUDs, implants, pills, ring, patch, all of those should not be stopped until the point at which somebody wants to become pregnant. Um, and when people are pre planning pregnancies, they should do um, things in anticipation of becoming pregnant, pregnant such as starting to take a multivitamin with folic acid, um, stop smoking, avoid drinking alcohol, and then meet with their doctor to review any medications they're taking and what risks those medications have um, on their, their pregnancy. And all of those things I would recommend doing before stopping contraceptives. <clears throat> and then the majority of people will return to normal fertility and regular menstrual cycles the next month that they stop their birth control pill. If they don't return to regular normal menstrual cycles within a month or two, then they really should see their doctor to figure out what's going on. What about um, after pregnancy? So I have a couple questions. Um, specific One specifically related to uh, breastfeeding. Are there... Mm -hmm methods or, um, first I'd like to ask, I've heard the um, idea or suggestion that um, you don't need to worry about birth control while breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. 
So it depends on how much and how long, right? <laughs> um, so people that are um, providing at least 85% of their baby's nutrition through breastfeeding um, or pretty much exclusively breastfeeding um, and not menstruating and are in the first six months of that baby's <laughs> life um, tend to be well protected. It tends to be an effective form of contraception with a low failure rate. Um, the caveat is, is that um, at some point, women return to normal ovulation and they will return to normal, normal ovulation prior to their first menstrual cycle. Um, and so it can be a little unpredictable as the baby matures, decreases the amount that it's feeding, um, other things in life change, when the menstrual cycle is going to come back, um, and when that ovulation is going to occur. So in general, I do recommend continuing to use at least a barrier method um, while breastfeeding and using lactation for um, contraception. If someone did want to start a new uh, contraceptive method back up while breastfeeding, um, are there some that are more recommended or safer than others? So um, there's been a lot of theory regarding the risk of uh, contraception and milk production. Um, and there is some theoretical risk in diminishing milk production with hormonal contraceptives. Um, however, in the majority of studies that have been done, actual decrease in milk production or diminishing breastfeeding rates have not been shown, especially with progesterone-only progesterone contraceptives. And progesterone-only contraceptives include um, hormonal IUDs, um, the hormonal implant, uh, Depo-Provera injection, and progesterone-only pills. Um, estrogen, um, if we give somebody estrogen uh, while they're breastfeeding, we can see a marked decrease in their milk production. Um, so with estrogen-containing contraceptives, we really avoid initiating an estrogen-containing contraceptive until breastfeeding is well-established. But once women have well-established breastfeeding, most of the stimulation to produce milk comes from cues from the baby and doesn't really come from the hormonal mechanisms of, of the body. So if someone is an IUD user before their pregnancy and you know, mm -hmm. took, their, took the break to have their baby and decided, you know, I liked the IUD, I want to go back to that, um, when, when is it safe to, to have an IUD placed again? So um, IUDs can be initiated um, immediately after delivery of the placenta. <laughs> so we have a program uh, here at our labor and delivery unit at Meritor Hospital where we have um, started placing um, immediate postpartum long-acting reversible contraception. And for IUDs, as soon as the placenta is delivered either at C-section or at vaginal delivery, um, we can place the IUD inside the uterus. Um, that has a benefit of not requiring an extra visit or extra procedure um, after uh, in the postpartum period to get contraception. Um, unfortunately, it has a slightly increased risk of expulsion, so the IUD can fall out of the uterus. It's big, the cervix is open um, at about a 10 to 20% rate versus the 5% rate that we see. Um, when we insert it in a non-pregnant or not immediately after a pregnancy. Um, the 
uh, sort of next time when an IUD can be placed is at four to six weeks postpartum. So we um, have to wait for the uterus to completely shrink down to its um, pre-pregnancy size in order to be able to safely um, place an IUD um, after pregnancy. So either right away or at that six-week postpartum visit is the most common time that we do it. Um, are there any other concerns or questions about like contraceptive contraception and pregnancy? So I do think that it's really important for people to to realize how quickly they can get pregnant um, after um, the um, delivery of a baby. Um, in women who are not breastfeeding, they can ovulate as soon as 21 days after the um, pregnancy has ended. And there's significant risk to um, having a pregnancy that occurs very quickly after the previous pregnancy. The things we worry about are increased risk of preterm delivery, increased risk of um, small babies, increased risk uh, um, of intrauterine growth restriction. Um, and then for moms, if they've had a C-section, it increases the likelihood that they'll have a uterine dehiscence or the uterine scar will open um, during that next pregnancy. Um, it also increases their risk of anemia. Um, so having effective contraception is really important to reduce the risk of all of those sort of negative pregnancy um, outcomes that can happen in pregnancies that are spaced too closely. Um, we really would recommend that women avoid pregnancy for at least 18 months after a delivery. Um, and there's especially high-risk women um, uh, such as women who had a pregnancy complication, such as a small baby or a preterm delivery. If you have one preterm delivery, you're more likely to have another one. And if you have a short interpregnancy interval, short time between pregnancies, that's more likely to happen. So those, those people really need to access um, contraception to reduce their risk to the, the next baby. Um, and because of that, um, we've, we've established our program to offer birth control in the hospital um, because we know when we look at, at studies that have been done at women who get birth control when they're in the hospital versus having to come back to clinic at a later date to access it, we have a much higher rate of uptake, um, longer duration of use, um, and, and better satisfaction. So we'll place the long-acting reversible devices, an explanon or an IUD right there in the hospital. And that helps women um, because it just takes that one, one more thing that you have to do with a, when you have a brand new baby off their plate, um, and then they can focus on all the other things in life that they need to focus on. Are there the same kind of time restrictions on placing an implant versus an IUD? Do you need to do it either right that second or wait six weeks? Nope. The implant is great because it just goes in the arm, and so it works the same whether we place it after delivery or, you know, that day, two days later, a week later. So it can be placed at any time after delivery. Um, and as I said, there's a little bit of sort of theoretical concern about the um, – the risk on breastfeeding, but when we look at the actual studies that have looked at breastfeeding rates, we don't see any difference between moms that had implants placed right away versus moms that waited six weeks to have an implant in terms of their milk production and their breastfeeding rates. So um, it's a very good form of contraception, easy to place. It's something that can be decided on after delivery, but before women leave the hospital. So it's a, it's a great option for a lot of women. 
Um, I asked about this a little bit before, but uh, if someone does have a history or sort of a genetic predisposition to a clotting disorders or um, pulmonary embolisms, are there kinds of birth control that are more safe or less safe for them to consider? In general, we would recommend avoiding anything that has estrogen in it, um, but often um, progestin-containing birth controls are okay. Um, it does depend on the specific clotting disorder, but for the most part, using um, uh, you know, a progestin-containing IUD or, or um, a progestin-containing pill does not increase the, the risk of clots. Are hormonal contraceptives uh, just less effective in some people than kind of the average rate? And I guess in particular, if someone experienced, so we're going to assume perfect use, which of course is always a little smushy, right? Mm -hmm. Probably no one is a perfect use person. Mm -hmm. um, but assuming that... If someone experiences a failure on one rate, are they more likely to experience a second failure on that same rate? Is it just less effective for them? You know, that's a tough question because I do see women, just sort of anecdotally, I see women that just seem to experience failures. <laughs> and it is hard to know exactly what goes into that. Um, but we don't have any sort of hard and fast evidence that, you know, there are particular sort of um, conditions inside the body that necessarily predict uh, increased failure rate. Um, and it, it does, we, we tend to think that it probably has more to do with um, ability to adhere to the regimen in a particular way um, that some people just aren't, aren't as able to adhere to. Um, but could that be a possibility? Sure. Sure. Um, I would say that long-acting reversible devices, because of their low failure rate, because of their you know, uh, lack of need to do something every day to use them, um, are sort of in somebody that's experienced a failure of something, those devices are the things that we, we lean towards in terms of, of trying to get them the most effective method and the lowest likelihood that they'll experience another failure. Is there um, anything else, uh, any other sort of lifestyle complications or concerns or ideas that people should keep in mind when they're picking out their methods? Um, I think that not, uh, I mean, I sort of said previously that there's a lot of options out there and there are different methods that work for different people. I think keeping an open mind, um, looking at how things are, are working for you, um, and a willingness to change if things seem like they're not working is really important. So often when I have a patient coming in to talk about birth control pills or, or a Depo-Provera shot, I still will go into detail about all of the other methods because I know that in about 50% of those women that choose a short-acting method, they'll stop using it in the year after they've chosen that method. And I want people to have in their mind, oh, there's these other methods, there's these other choices for me. If they find that the side effects are onerous, if they find that, uh, you know, they just don't like the way they feel or whatever on the particular method that they're on, then I like them to have that awareness, to have that knowledge out there that there is something for them. And they don't have to just, you know, live in fear that they'll have an unattended pregnancy because um, that weighs on people as well, that, that concern. Um, 
And so I, I would want people um, to just keep an open mind in terms of not only the method they've chosen, but their future ability to, to switch to a different method. Um, and then talk to your healthcare provider is the other thing. Like if something's not working for you, like we, we want to make things work. We want you to have the method that you like and that you feel comfortable with. Um, I think sometimes women feel like their provider, uh, you know, sort of has an, another agenda or has a, a desire for them to stay on whatever they've chosen. And, and we really don't. I'd like to reassure people that, that we really don't. We just want to, to help them choose the thing that's going to work for them the best. I wish I could have had this conversation with you like 12 years ago. <laughs> this was um, incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you. This has been great. I love I love to talk about birth control. I could go on for hours. <laughs> I could do. Um, and if uh, we have more questions that come in, we'll definitely follow back up. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to the friends and listeners who supplied their contraception questions and to Dr. Bennett for her expertise and time. On the next Women's Health Cast, we have a special conversation with Kelly Moley. Dr. Moley is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and she was recently appointed senior vice president and chief scientific officer at the March of Dimes. Dr. Moley sat down with me after giving a lecture to our department. She told me about her research on mouse models that suggest obesity can change our genes and become a trait we pass down for generations, and what that might mean for us as obesity rates increase worldwide. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.